0: Thank you for being a part of our church service today. It is our desire at Riverstone Church that God's Word will work in you to produce an abundant-filled life. To know more about the ministry or to support, visit RiverstoneChurch.net. May the Lord bless you today as you listen to this message. In a little bit, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11. If you want to turn there, I'm I'm not going to read the text right away. It's kind of a two-part sermon, but we'll do both parts today. Uh, Brother Robert rightly said that prayer is a labor. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is one of my kind of personal heroes of the faith, so to speak, somebody that uh, I would like to follow as as he followed Christ. He's with the Lord now, but uh, was a man committed to the Word and to prayer. In fact, after... He passed away, and people were asking his wife about him. He was known as, as a preacher primarily, very gifted in the exposition of the word. But uh, when his wife was remembering him, and as I don't have the exact quote, but she was saying "You know, a lot of people would probably note his preaching, but what they don't realize is he was a man of prayer. He was a man of deep prayer. And he was the one that said, again, something to the effect that you've never really prayed until you've wrestled. That that without wrestling, without the pressing in, without the laboring, there really is no prayer. And I think like most people I know, I I have yet to meet a a Christian uh, who has ever expressed to me that they were satisfied with their prayer life. Even those who are deeply committed to prayer and intercession, there's always something more. And as much of a man of prayer as as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was and many others who've come before and after him, I think he would say there's just something out there that I still want to grab hold of. And that's how I feel this morning. One of the things that first attracted us to Riverstone, apart from the people, many of whom we knew and had already loved, was just the commitment of this church to mainly two things, uh, among others, but two things attracted us, the commitment to the word of God and the commitment to prayer. This church was birthed out of a prayer meeting that started with a group of people that just felt like there's something more and we want to grab hold of it. And people were attracted to that and it grew and it grew from a home into to what we have now. And we don't want to lose that. But we understand that Prayer is difficult, and there are times we we see those people that have this, just seems like an ability to take hold of God, to hear his voice, and we wonder what it is. What, what is it that makes it seem like they're in direct conversation with God? And there are times that maybe we've prayed, I'll, I'll speak of me, although I don't want to be be the center of attention but i there are times i've prayed and wondered is anyone even listening is is this just me talking to myself or is this prayer actually accomplishing something because prayer by its very nature is meant to produce an effect it's not the prayer that produces the effect; it's God that does His work. But somehow there's an intersection between prayer and God where He responds, though He's sovereign, though His plans are established and set from before the foundation of the world, nevertheless, He responds to the prayers of His people. It's a means to interact with God. To begin to grasp his will, my, my favorite definition of prayer, my son shared it with me. It's from a fellow named Tim Keller. And when he shared this, I was so intrigued, I went out and bought the book on prayer by Keller. But he said, prayer is entering into a conversation that God started. Because he spoke first. And he said, now come in and interact with me. Interact with my word and interact with me through prayer. And I can't explain all the dynamics of it, but God does speak to people who pray. And people who pray speak to God. It's not just a one way, but it's a conversation. And the difficulty is that it's not easy. There's a spiritual dimension to prayer that we understand where there is an enemy it's actually a threefold enemy. There is a, a real spiritual demonic power that's at work in this world, and it works through the world and appeals to that old nature that still remains in us that would distract us from the things of God, that would try to hinder us in our crying out to God, and that's part of what makes prayer such a difficult thing at times. To where even when we pray, we wonder, did it matter? And even though we desire to pray, we struggle with it. And even while we're praying, our mind wanders into so many other areas. We come to the conclusion, is there really a point? Well, there is a point. Because James tells us that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, a righteous woman, a righteous person, does indeed avail much. Things happen when God's people pray. So what's the challenge? We're going to look at the negative first, and then we're going to go to our text and close with what I pray God will use to bring a great renewal of the positive of prayer in our lives this morning. Because there is, if there is such a thing as effective, fervent prayer, then the opposite of that is ineffective, lackadaisical prayer whether it be ineffectual prayer prayed by the righteous, or whether it be unrighteous people trying to grab hold of God, and it doesn't work. It's effectual, fervent prayer of the righteous. But even there are things that the righteous can be hindered in, in their praying. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, some of this is not going to make a bit of sense to you. But if you go just hang with me, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm going to speak to you in a little bit. Because I want you to understand what I'm talking about. No matter where you're at this morning, in terms of your faith or lack of faith with Jesus Christ, I believe he brought you here to hear these words. You see, the first challenge to prayer apart from the spiritual dimension, which we're going to address shortly, is the fact that prayer can indeed be hindered. And one of the hindrances presented by Scripture is the hindrance of sin that dwells and abides in our lives, and it has never been confessed and laid before the altar of Jesus Christ. You see, the psalmist in Psalm 34, verse 12 and following said, What man is he that desires life? that loves, that longs for many days, that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile or deceitfulness. Depart from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are tuned to their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to be cut off from the remembrance of the earth. When we come to faith in Christ, something happens. Immediately, there's an exchange that takes place. Our sin has been exchanged for Christ's righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin, or or in other words, took our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So God's eyes are always on the righteous. If you are a believer, if you have converted to Christ, been born again, however you want to frame it, God's eyes are upon you. But nevertheless, there are hindrances to a good, pure walk with Him when we stumble or fall Or even in those times where we willingly step back into the old ways and the old life and the sins that we hate, but we still wrestle with. My wife and I are legally married. We're married in a church. We have the legal documentation. We have the certificates given by the pastor. But if I never speak to her, it doesn't change our legal relationship but it sure does hinder our marital relationship. What, what kind of life would that be? To be married to somebody and never speak to her, never enter into her house. Sin can be a barrier to our hearing from God and God's willingness to listen to us, though his eyes never leave us and his ears are always tuned to us. The scripture says in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I do not regard the iniquity in my heart, then the Lord will not hear me. There comes a time when we wonder, Lord, are you hearing me? And maybe we need to say, Lord, search my heart. Open my eyes. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Because as Peter put it in 1 Peter 3.12. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. He reminds us of an Old Testament truth. And then he says his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And we know there are three categories of sin. Sins of Omission. Things that we should have done, but we didn't. We just didn't feel like it. We forgot about it. Just wasn't fitting for our agenda today. Sins of commission, things that we should not have done, but we did anyway in willfulness. You know, we, we like to talk about stumbling and slipping. And I think those are good words for a believer who does struggle with sin because we don't want it. Not if we're really truly saved. But nevertheless, all sin is willful, and it is against God. And then there are the sins, one writer said, of disposition, the sins of the attitude, pride, arrogance. James 4, 6 says that God resists the proud. It's not that he ignores the proud. He is actively working against the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Unconfessed sin is a barrier to prayer. But it's not the only barrier. It's not the only hindrance we see in Scripture. Another hindrance is unbelief. I remember a few years back, more than a few now, it's quite a few years back, as I was just starting... In ministry, there was a, a pastor I knew, he was an associate at a church. He didn't preach that often, but when he preached without fail, there was a move of the Spirit. Somebody was healed, or, or somebody spoke in tongues, and a message of encouragement came to the church, or, or somebody was saved invariably. And I asked him, you know, the young guy, I want to know what's the secret. I don't remember I had my notebook in my hands but I was I was ready to take notes thinking there you know here's some good theology coming and I did ask him why is it that when you minister something always happens why is it when you minister that God always moves and my pages of notes I was anticipating to write up and and use he said four words Because I expect him to. When I step into the pulpit, I expect God to move. That that was it. That was his theology. And you see, there are times we pray, and we're praying maybe with an intellectual knowledge that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, all the qualities that belong to God, but at the same time, in our hearts, we're wondering... Does God really care? Is God really good? Can he really work in this situation? Or have I finally found myself into one thing that's going to throw him off his game? You see, we wrestle with belief. But James 1, 6-8 tells us, Let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The writer of Hebrews reminds us without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And part of the seeking of God is through His Word, but also through prayer. Lord, meet me. Lord, speak to me. Lord, reveal Yourself to me. So to pray effectively, we must believe that God is who He says He is, and that He will do what He said He would do. But we acknowledge at the same time that we're like that fella in Scripture that seemed to lose all hope, And what would he say? Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because we struggle. God heals one day, and the next day something else comes up, and we wonder, God, can you heal when he's already done it? God, can you save? Well, yes, I've saved millions. Yeah, but you don't know this guy I'm praying for. We struggle, and it hinders our prayer. So our sin has to be laid at the altar and our unbelief has to be laid at the altar. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I'm struggling with sin, but I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Help me to walk like it and live like it. But there are other hindrances. James 4.3 would indicate to us that prayer is hindered by selfishness. Because many of our prayers are prayers first, foremost, and only prayers of self-interest and self-satisfaction. You see, selfishness is putting our own needs and interests first. James points that out in James 4.3. Here's how he writes it. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. You see, our motive in praying. Now, now, God is a God who gives good gifts. And he shows his kindness, Scripture says in Romans chapter 2, so that we'll see his kindness and we'll be moved to repentance. We serve a good God, a kind God who loves to lavish gifts, not just on his own people, but even on wicked society. So that they'll see his kindness somehow and be turned to him in repentance. We think God's going to strike people down and then they'll be moved to repentance. And there are times God indeed does bring judgment. But his preferred method is to show his kindness. Nevertheless, his divine purpose is not just, first and foremost, our satisfaction our happiness, our joy, his first priority is that he be glorified in our praying and that the answers he gives will glorify himself, will reveal his goodness, and will build his kingdom. And it's, it's just a subtle little difference in motive because we can pray the same prayer and completely miss it. Consider, for example, the prayer for revival. Are we praying, and I say we, not Riverstone necessarily, but people, we, we, we hear the word revival, let's pray for revival. Are we praying for revival so the church will grow to, to a greater place of influence and power? Is it so that the finances of the church will increase? Is it so that a good report can be given out at the next minister's meeting or gathering of of leaders? Or is it because we cannot stand to see the Lord dishonored by a worldly church? Is it because we cannot stand to see places and people that do not know God not just as Savior, but as worthy of all glory, all honor, all power, and praise? Do we pray for revival out of some kind of a self-centered motive, or do we pray because we know that as God empowers the church to be a witness, everything changes, and he comes back to his rightful. He's, He's never left it. We've left it. But we see him as he really is, as king of kings, as Lord of lords, as the one ruling and reigning and directing our lives. Same prayer, Lord, bring revival. But is it motivated out of stinginess or out of selfishness or out of selflessness? And that brings us to the next hindrance, which is stinginess. Stinginess is the failure to meet the needs of someone else. Stinginess is a lack of generosity to the poor. A lack of generosity to the Lord's work. And God will not listen to the prayers of a stingy person. Consider Proverbs 21 verse 13. Whoso stops his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself but he shall not be heard over in 1st John chapter 3 beginning verse 17 we find but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does God's love abide in him little children let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, in other words, we we know we're people of generosity. We know we're people of justice and care. If our heart's not condemning us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. There is a relationship between generosity and prayer. There's a relationship between selflessness and prayer. There's a relationship between faith and prayer. There's a relationship between righteousness and prayer. And when our prayers are feeling hindered, maybe we need to ask God, why is that? What am I missing? What, what blind spot is there that needs to be revealed? If, if It wouldn't be called a blind spot if we could see it. But sometimes we need God to shift us a little bit so we can get another angle and examine ourselves. Prayer can be hindered and is hindered. Well, let me, let me come back. There's another verse I want to bring, bring to mind. It's a familiar verse. He who is kind to the poor, Proverbs 19 verse 17 says, lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he's done. Proverbs 28, 27, he who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. And this one probably many of you can quote. It tells us, Philippians 4, 19, surely my God shall supply all of your needs, according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And we love that verse. We love to take that one out and put it on post-it notes and put it on the mirror. We love to put it on postcards and send it out. But if we're not careful to consider the context, it's a scripture that is abused and misused. Because that promise of God supplying our needs according to his riches in glory through Christ Jesus our Lord is framed in a passage about generosity. Where Paul was giving thanks and testifying to the generosity of those who helped his ministry. To those who helped the poor. To those who helped other cities that were struggling. God's promises that relate to prayer are tied to the way we live, to the way we think, to the things we do, and even things like unforgiveness can be a hindrance to prayer. If you're offering your gift at the altar, Matthew writes, and you remember that your brother is something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Mark put it this way in, in his, uh, the parallel gospel, when he wrote in Mark eleven twenty five when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him. Forgive him. Forgive her. So that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. To, to be unhindered in prayer, there has to be unforgiveness. And we know it's not easy. Because we like to get back at people that have got us. It's our human nature. But it doesn't work that way. Hindrance of marital conflict. This one's geared toward the husbands primarily, but I think the principle applies to both spouses. 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, you husbands, Dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as under the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, if you want to just take it, okay, well, that's only for the husbands. That's, that's fine. I won't argue with you. <laughs> Fellas, are your prayers feeling hindered? And then James 5 16, hindered by lack of fervency. If indeed effectual, fervent prayer avails much, then certainly the reverse is true. Lackadaisical, indifferent, rushed, hurried, let me check that box today and get it over with kind of prayer accomplishes very little. So that's the negative, let's move to the positive. This is what I'm really excited about this morning. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 11. This follows the the scriptures that tell us that Jesus was praying in a certain place, as he was accustomed to do. When he'd finished, one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, like John taught his disciples. And we know there's two dimensions of that. Uh, Not not only do we need to be taught how to pray, and, and we'll go see those elements. That's what I want to focus on. But just the fact we need to be taught to pray. We need to be constantly reminded we need to pray. We need to pray. That's what God's put on the heart of the leadership here. That's what we're going to continue to share, to speak about, to promote. We need to learn to pray that this church be a house of the word and a house of prayer. A lot of other great things, but to us, these are the essentials because these are what it means to enter into that conversation with God. And then he gave them an example, we call it the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer sometimes, where we see they started out with, with adoration, with worship, Hallowed be your name. Holy is your name. Great are you, God. And then C, A, adoration. C, confession. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Adoration. Confession. Thanksgiving. Supplication. The four elements of prayer. But then he gives this story, and he said to them, which of you has a friend and will go to that friend at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? if you then, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, again, this this story is connected to the issue of teach me to pray, teach me how to pray. Here's an example of prayer where you adore God, confess to him, thank him even before you present your needs. But here's here's now a story. Fellas, draw out the principles, Jesus was saying. Maybe they had to come back to him like like on other occasions. It's not recorded here, but maybe, well, what did you really mean, Lord? What was the point of the story? Well, some of the principles I want to draw out this morning that I I pray, and I've been asking, Lord, please help us to know how to pray through this. First of all, I want to start with with the predicate of relationship. This man had a neighbor who was not just a neighbor, but a friend. And this is where the rubber meets the road for, for those of you who may be here this morning and have never heard the gospel. Have never heard the good news that there is a God who loves you so much that he gave his only begotten Son to come and to take your sin. Well, what sin? We're living in a day where even simple terms that, that somebody like me grew up with need definition. If you've ever told a lie, you have sinned, you have violated. God, because he said, thou shalt not sin. If you've ever stolen something, whether it be just a few pennies from mommy's purse as a child, you have violated God's word. You've transgressed his law. And the wages of sin, Scripture tells us, not not just big sins, not just murder, not just capital offense, the wages of sin, any sin, Because Scripture teaches if you violated one point of the law, you've really broken every bit of it. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus gave his life to pay that fine, to to satisfy those wages. He died so that we don't have to. Because God says my wrath is going to be poured out on every sinner But for those that put their trust in Jesus and believe that He is who He said He is and He did what He said He did, the wrath that should be poured out on us has been poured out on Him. I mean, Scripture puts it pretty harshly that He was crushed by the Father so that we don't have to be crushed. And the beauty of that is not just the forgiveness of our sins. But it's the restoration of relationship with him. So that when we go and knock, we're not coming as strangers. We're coming as friends. Because Jesus himself said, I didn't call you servants. Servants don't know what their masters do, but I've called you my friends. So this man had a relationship with his neighbor, considered him a friend. And he went next door when a a, a visitor came in the night. Now, notice what he asked for. He asked, he didn't say, hey, can you give me something to eat so I can feed my guest? He asked for something very specific. And the principle I believe that's here for us is that effective prayer aims at something specific. Three loaves of bread was very specific request. Why three? Maybe he had a wife and a child with him. Why three? Maybe he hadn't eaten since the day before, and the get, the, the host was going to make up for, for breakfast, dinner, and supper. We don't know why three, but it was very specific. And you see, sometimes when we pray, we pray for nothing. You know, Lord bless brother so and so in a very special way. Well, what does that even mean? And how do we know when it happens? Now, I'm not being, please, I'm not mocking anybody. Because I've prayed those kinds of prayers. And there are times we pray and we really don't know what to pray. And that's when the Holy Spirit groans on our behalf and makes intercession. That's when Jesus, who sits at the right hand of the Father, makes intercession and and prays for us or straightens out our poorly crafted prayers. But at the same time, prayer aims at something specific. So what about this kind of prayer for somebody that's sick? Lord, heal brother so-and-so. Heal sister so-and-so. You know she has the flu. She's bedridden. Lord, please provide the finances she needs while she's off work to be able to care for her family during this time. Lord, encourage her heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to know that you're at work somehow, to bring some kind of a good out of this terrible situation. Lord, please raise somebody up. Or Lord, if it's me, show me how to go and comfort her. And you're aiming at something specific. And that way, you know that God will indeed answer the prayer because there are things that he wants to do to show himself to us, to show himself through us to the world. But if we have nothing we're praying about, nothing we're aiming out, not only is it pretty boring kind of prayer, but how do we know when God does a thing? You see, prayer that's effective is aimed at something specific, but it's also approached with confidence it would have been an absolutely foolish waste of time for this neighbor to get out of bed and go to his friend's house and knock on the door if he didn't have at least a slight hope that his friend was willing to help. Now, there's a cultural nuance here. In the Middle East, hospitality is such a strong part of culture that the neighbor's reputation was on the line it wasn't a matter of he might do this or he might not do it. He was going to do it if there was any way possible because his reputation was on the line. The culture of the community was so deeply ingrained that he, even if he didn't feel like it, even if he's thinking to himself, man, I don't want to get out of bed. It's just going to stir the kids up. They're going to be awake. It's going to be a mess. Because of the character of the culture, he got up and he gave the bread. And the point of this is that God's character, God's culture is generosity, goodness, and kindness. So when we come to him, we come with a confidence that indeed he will meet our need, that indeed he will answer our prayers. He can do no other because he's faithful to himself, faithful to his word, faithful to who he is. He wants to answer us and will do so because of who he is. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 4:16, we find, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. He wouldn't invite us if it was not his desire to meet our needs. When, when my kids were little, my daughter needed something. she came straight to me, no beating around the bush. I don't understand why my son was different I guess just personality difference but he kind of back into it you know he kind of slide around and I could tell by the way he was starting his approach he needed something and I'd say son you know I love you just ask me if I can do it and I don't think it's gonna hurt you you know I'm gonna do it well that's how God is effective prayer Aims at something specific, it's approached with confidence, and it is applied with persistence. <laughs> See, part of our problem, and part of my problem, all too often I give up before I've received the answer. Because sometimes I'm not fervent in my prayers. If you remember Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, he had a vision, he didn't understand it. He began to ask the Lord, Lord, what is this? Show me what this means. Show me how to understand this. For 21 days, he wrestled, Lord, please make this clear. And on that 21st day, an angel came and said, you know, Daniel, God heard you the very first time you asked. And I've been on the way with the answer. I've been on the way to show you what that vision meant, but there was opposition There was spiritual opposition. I was opposed by a demonic force called the Prince of Persia in that case. For 21 days, Daniel persisted over something God heard once, first time, and dispatched the answer, but there was opposition, and sometimes we give up too quick. We're not fervent in our prayers, but you see, God always answers. Now, now here's a, a place to pause. And note that his answer may not be what we want to hear. One writer put it this way, if, if our request is wrong, God says no. If the timing is wrong, God says slow. But if you're wrong, God says grow. If the request is right, the timing is right, you're right, God says go. Yes. And we have to persist until we have the answer. Just like Jacob, as he wrestled with that angel of the Lord that I believe was a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ himself, said, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. Or like the Shunammite woman whose son died and she went to the man of God and said, come and and heal my child. And he said, well, I'm just going to send my servant Gehazi, he'll lay the staff on the child, everything be right. And scripture says she took hold of him and would not let go until he went himself. We have to persist until that breakthrough comes. And persistence prayer is a labor because we have to deal with ourselves first. We have to understand there's an enemy that's opposing God's work for us, in us, and through us. But there's action here. Ask. Seek. Knock. Sometimes we have to knock till our knuckles are sore. And finally, effective prayer is answered through surrender. See, there's a misconception that we fall into that prayer is just simply getting God to give us what we want. God's our genie in the bottle, our great heavenly grandfather ready to give out a quarter every time we Ask for one. But in reality, prayer is a process which brings us into conformity with God's will. It's why Jesus, when he prayed, said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And I actually had somebody, a a preacher, tell me that's a cop-out. Because when you pray for some to be healed, you say, but nevertheless, your will be done. What you're doing, you're, you're giving God a way out in case he doesn't heal. You're giving yourself a way out in case people wonder, well, why is that man's prayers not effective? But there's no greater statement of faith than to surrender our will to the will of God. Stanley Jones put it this way. Prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat... And catch hold of the shore and pull? Do I pull the shore to me? Or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will. But the aligning of my will to the will of God. In Christianity, we love that word commitment. But the further I go, the more I hate that word. Because commitment always comes with a catch. I'll commit to this, but they're mine, but I might not commit to that. I'm asking this morning. Don't commit anything to God. Surrender everything to God. I shared yesterday, and I'm going to close with this, and then we're going to pray. Even after hearing it yesterday, my mom told me what it was. I still can't remember what it was. When I was born, I had some kind of a problem and was not expected to live. I mean, basically no hope. And as I've heard mom and dad tell it, mom usually telling it, as you probably have discerned, dad's pretty quiet most of the time. Um, She was praying, Lord, heal my baby. Lord, save my baby. And dad's prayer was... Lord, if he's going to grow up and be a a scoundrel, take him now. Okay, that's surrender. And sometimes our prayers are hindered because we won't surrender. But if you've ever had that experience of saying, Lord, your will, not my will, not as a way of escape for God in case he doesn't do something, but as a genuine act of surrender, then you remember the sweetness and the peace that comes even when nothing immediately changes. And this morning, I simply invite you to prayer. That's it. The Holy Spirit touched your heart about something you need to make right. Between you and God, the Holy Spirit encourage your heart to desire, Lord, teach me to pray. That's okay. You know, I'm I'm not gonna just say, come up for this, come up for that. If the Lord touched your heart this morning and you don't know Him as your Savior, how do you how do you what 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 do you do? I could give you words to repeat, but that's not gonna help you. Just imagine what it'd be like to have a, a dear friend that you've hurt. What would you do to make it right what would you say because prayer is just simply talking to god entering into the conversation that he started he said now come and come and talk to me and while you talk and listen so the altar's open uh, i don't know what the praise team has planned but i'd i'd just ask brother anthony or whoever's in the back if you put on a little that soft music again Uh, Maybe the praise team will close out in a little bit, but I don't want them to miss the opportunity to pray either. So church, it's time to pray. Thank you for being a part of Riverstone Church. I hope today's message encouraged you to take a step closer to Christ. If there is anything we can pray for or talk with you about, please visit our website at riverstonechurch.net. May the Lord bless you this week, and may you walk in all of His promises and plans for your life.